with mental snapshots. And while we're doing that, we have a couple of announcements. One of them, um, Conquer Series. Conquer Series, Maturity Series, starts up um, this coming Monday at 7 p.m. If anybody's interested, it's virtual, it's online. You can sign up by emailing conqueror at hurtcommunity.com. That's too difficult. Just get a hold of Jim Hacker. Look us up. Global Finance Magazine ranked the nations in order of peacefulness. Which of the following failed to make the top five list? Iceland. Italy. New Zealand. Portugal, which is not on the top five list of peacefulness. Jack, where do you come up with this stuff? <laughs> hey, another um, a praise report, actually a miracle report. The guys here, the guys online have been praying for Pastor Coffey's grandson Emmett for quite um, I'm not going to say quite a long time, quite a little time, but very um, passionately. And Pastor Coffey reported this morning that um, Emmett um, was healed. Um, liver was not functioning. Liver is functioning. So praise God. Next slide. As Dallas slowly makes his way up to the stage. Heavenly Father, we lift Dallas up here. We um, ask that you would um, honor his preparation and, Lord, speak through him. And, Lord, I just uh, give you praise for Dallas and for the pastoring and mentoring and for Wes's preaching in Jesus' name. Amen. Dallas Straw. Good morning. All right, next slide. I'm going to try to manage my voice because sometimes I get excited and this is kind of loud. Okay, so El Shaddai, the Almighty God. Next slide. Okay, so the All-Sufficient One, the Almighty Lord, the Lord God Almighty. It's used, this phrase is used 48 times in the whole Bible. It's uh, used seven times as a complete phrase, El and Shaddai. It's used 41 times as just Shaddai. But what's really kind of amazing is that 31 of 48 times it's used, it's used in just one book, the book of Job. Then 12% of the time, or 6 out of 48 times, it's used in just one other book in Genesis. And so we'll talk about a little bit why that might be later on. Next. So in Genesis 17 is where we get the first usage of it. And I apologize, I'm going to turn back to you to read this. But when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am, the God, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your number. Abram fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. So I think it's an important, it's easy to miss the, uh, the context and the significance of what was just said if you don't know the backstory. And we know the story, but to be honest with you, 
I didn't put this all together until I, so I had to, <laughs> okay? But my question is, why does God only now introduce himself first time in scriptures and the first time to Abram after 24 years as El Shaddai, okay? More than that, God could have given Abraham his children when he made his first promise to him at 75. So my question is, why didn't he? If he planned to do it anyway, my question is, why wait? Why make it such a challenge for Abram, right? Why make it hard on the guy? Next. So we look at Abraham's called, or Abram's called, at 75. And we see this in Genesis chapter 12, okay? Next. Okay, I'm going to catch up here. Okay, where it says, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and to your, and your people and your father's household to a land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, and Abram was 75 years old when he set out. Now, this is important because we know from other parts of the Bible that Sarai at this time is about 65. Next slide. But then God's not done. Now, this is years later. Abram goes to Canaan, then he sojourns in Egypt, then he comes back from that, and he goes back to, to Canaan, and he hangs out, and he splits up with Lot at that time, and then God reaffirms his covenant one more uh, for the first time, okay? And he promises to make all of Abram's descendants like the dust. If you can count the dust, that's how many you're going to have. But what's interesting, this is years after the first promise, and he still doesn't have any kids. Next slide. Then he's got a second reaffirmation where Abram now defeats the four kings, rescues Lot, tithes to Melchizedek, uh, to Melchizedek right? And then after this, it, God appears to him in another vision, a second reaffirmation. It says, I'm your great shield and your great reward. But Abram says, okay, you've given me a lot, right? But what you haven't given me, what you promised, which was a descendant, right? But God says, no. Come on outside. Look at the stars in the sky. I'm, they're going to be as many as the stars in the sky. Again, though, uh, Abram believed him, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Let's drive this point home. He doesn't have any kids at this point. Okay, next. Now, he's 86. In Genesis 16, we find out this is at least 10, if not 11 years, after the initial promise, and he's getting a little worried. Okay, Not just he, but Sarai. And Sarai... It thinks it's now impossible. She's 76. This is important. Please remember that number, 76. She thinks it's impossible now that she's 76. And so she says, hey, go into my servant, uh, Hagar, have children through her because God has made it impossible for me to have kids. Okay? So you can kind of see this idea that, okay, God has made it impossible, but we don't want God to be a liar. We're going to give him a hand so that he's not a liar. I got to tell you, man, watch out if we find, if Dallas finds himself with that logic, we need to sprint the other direction. We need to be really worried at that point. Okay, so what does he do? Genesis 16. You know, he, he says, okay, fine. He sleeps with Hagar. She gets pregnant. She begins to despise Sarai, and there's this massive marital family dysfunction after that. Next. So then, this is 16 years after that, right, at least. 24 years after the initial promise, and we're back to the start of the story that we started this presentation, which is in Genesis 17, where God 
changes Abram's name to Abraham, where God introduces himself as El Shaddai. But more specifically, this time, he says, this time next year, he gives an exact amount of time, you're going to have a child, it's going to be through Sarah, you're going to name him Isaac. Next. Now, this is key. 24 years after the initial promise, after three reaffirmations. But an interesting thing is, Sarah now, she thought it was impossible at 76, she's 89 now. Right? It just got more impossibler, right, if such a thing is possible. Okay, next. So she gets the fourth reaffirmation, I think. Why? Because you have the three, three beings, okay? We think that, I think that one of them was a pre-incarnate Christ, but at least three angels come to visit Abram and Sarah, Abraham and Sarah, and they reaffirm what was just told to Abram, said, hey, you're going to have a child in one year, and what does Sarah do? She laughs, because again, it was, it was impossible at 76, clearly far more impossible now at 89. But sure enough, Genesis 21, Sarah finally gives birth. Abram's 100 years old, and she's 90, 25 years after the initial promise. So next, so here's my question. Why does God wait until Abram, but especially Sarah, are so old, too old to give birth to Isaac before he gives him. And why does God wait to change his name, or not a change name, but introduce himself as El Shaddai and change Abram's name to Abraham? Okay, but that's not the best question. There's a bunch of other good ones out there, like Jesus. Why does he wait to heal Lazarus? I got to tell you, if I was one of his disciples at the time, I'd be like, ooh, ooh, I got a question. Uh, you healed this centurion servant without going there. Why not just like, bam, healed, right? Number one, I'm lazy. I don't want to walk all the way. We got to go to this place. Number two, you can do it. Why not just do it? Right? But then the second one, okay, Israel and, and, Egypt and uh, the Egyptian army and Pharaoh and the Red Sea and stuff. My question is this. Why doesn't God just, bam, kill the Egyptian army in Egypt? He just killed every firstborn of uh, the, the men and animals. I mean, clearly this is not a difficult task, Right? Why not just zap them then? Why have them wander around the desert, back them up against the sea, and then have them cross? Well, what's amazing to me is, like, modern scholars are trying to explain away the, the miracle of the parting of the Red Sea. And they're like, okay, well, maybe the Red Sea, translated in Hebrew, means Yom Suf, the Sea of Reeds. It's a marsh, not a sea. And maybe there's this uh, was it, uh, weather phenomena that held up the water, and they're able to pass through in what amounts to a puddle. All right. Okay, fine. You're just setting up a bigger miracle. God drowned horses, chariots, charioteers in a puddle? I got to tell you, that's pretty amazing to me, right? Either way, we're left with this conclusion. God removes all plausible explanations for Isaac's birth. All the plausible explanations for Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead removes all plausible explanations for how Israel survived. Okay, next slide. So God's clearly trying to communicate something to someone, his omnipotence, his all-powerful nature to someone, okay? He appears to set up tests that only he could pass, right? More than that, when we look at this, who is it that doubts? Who's he trying to communicate this? Who doubts his omniscience or his omnipotence? I would argue it's men and angels, and we could prove it. Look at the disciples. They literally lived with Jesus for years. And at the end, the best of them doubted him, right? The next best denied him, and the worst of them betrayed him after years. It's, it gets worse. What about Satan and the angels? 
that become demons. They don't wrestle with God's existence. For them, that's a settled issue. He exists. Question is, is he as omnipotent, all-powerful, or good as he claims to be? So the last part here is, you can see the logic here of what God's setting up. He's like, if God can do this, the next question is, what else can he do? More than that, if God is faithful and capable in the impossible, then how much more so is he capable and able and willing in the mundane? Which puts us in this place. The possible is definitely the province of us, of man. And the impossible is his specific jurisdiction. But here's the best part. We got a God that cares about both, right? The impossible and the mundane. And here's the last part that I would leave you with is before we transition. What is it that's going on in your life right now or your world that's impossible, that only an almighty God can save, salvate, save or fix, okay? So next, Dr. Tony Evans brings up this next part. Then it goes to the book of Job is God as the final authority on matters. So why is El Shaddai used 31 times out of the 48 of the whole Bible in just one book? Well, I'd argue that Job 6 gives us an idea. We look at these words. I got to tell you, I've felt prayed these words, not even realizing that Job had prayed them. What strength do I have that I should still hope? What prospects that I should be patient? Do I have the strength of stone? Is my flesh bronze? Do I have any power to help myself? Now that success has been driven from me. We're talking to a guy that's, that's backed up against the wall here, right? In uh, Job 5, he's told by his friends, hey, you should plead your case to the Lord. And he goes, good idea. And so Job 13, he's like, I want to put my case before the Lord. And we know how that ends. But the key part here is why is El Shaddai so important to Job? It's because his case is utterly helpless, utterly hopeless otherwise. He's been ruled against. At every level up to this point, only an El Shaddai can save him. Okay, so next. The key part here is, I think there's three ideas that I'd like you to take from this. Is One, El Shaddai is the most valuable to the most powerless and the most desperate. Conversely, El Shaddai is the least valuable and the, to the least powerless and the least desperate. The self-righteous, the self-rich, the self-empowered, they have little need for an almighty God. They are God enough, God aplenty for themselves. They just don't need him. Next. So Dr. Tony Evans brings this out as the Supreme Court. He uses God as that, that, that final judgment. And we know, how do, you, how do you get to the Supreme Court? Well, somebody's got to lose at a lower court, like a trial court. They appeal up to the state court of appeals. And they lose there. Somebody loses there, and they appeal up to the state Supreme Court. They lose there, and they appeal up to a federal trial court. And they lose there, and then somebody appeals up to the U.S. Court of Appeals, and they lose there, and it goes to the, the Supreme Court. Now, what's interesting is that we've seen, like, say, even the last four years with all the court cases, you can get spun up whichever side you're on. With these lower courts, and you're like, oh, one at that level. Oh, he lost at that level. One at that level, lost at that level, whatever it is. The point is, you start to realize, it really doesn't matter until we get to the last level. Either the Supreme Court's going to reject the case and not take it, and the, the ruling's going to stand, or they're going to accept it, and they're going to rule on it. Okay, But until they've spoken, you kind of haven't heard really the final judgment on it. 
But the same is true in our lives, okay? So we look at this, and Dr. Tony Evans, I think, brings this out really well. I'll just tell you, so here's some of the lower courts. The first one is your accuser. Revelations 12 tells us straight up front, the accuser stands before God, accusing the brethren day and night. You're going to lose this one. Just, just go into it, understanding it's in his job description. Accuser, you've lost. But then you're going to appeal, or he will, to your circumstances. I, more often than not, you're going to lose here. And why? He's going to point out, look at you. You're addicted to pornography. You're addicted to alcohol. You're, you're, you've lost your job or your, your marriage is failing. Every circumstance is testifying against you. You've lost. All right, so you, maybe you lose, maybe you win there, so you appeal to the next level, or he does. And you go to your spouse. Now, this could be good, this could be bad, right? We just don't know. Even with Job, Job was innocent. And his wife, she's looking at the circumstances, she's like, I don't know, right? Maybe there was something that you, maybe you did something I didn't see. I don't know. Maybe you win here, and Satan appeals. doesn't matter. The point is, that you're sp- maybe you're going through marital problems, right? And she's going to rule against you, okay? So let's say you appeal to the next level, which is not really a level. It's kind of parallel because we don't want to say your wife's lower than that, right? But we're following Job's story. So he appeals to his friends. And these are guys, you know, from my, ba- from my experience with the Middle East, they've probably known each other since childhood, right? And he's thinking, these guys have known me. They know I'm a good man. And they're looking at the circumstances like, dude, your children are dead, all of them, without exception. Every possession you have has been crushed, stolen, or destroyed. Your health is gone. What good God would punish a righteous man for, with all that? They're like, look, you must have done something, right? And maybe you got great friends, and they come alongside you. No, nah, I don't believe it. Either way, you or Satan are going to appeal to the next level. So you appeal to your conscience, and i got to tell you, I lose here every time. I have the guiltiest conscience on the planet. When I leave from a grocery store, if I haven't bought anything, I, I like feel like I should lift up my shirt and spin just to make sure they know I'm not like shoplifting or something. I just feel guilty about everything. Things I haven't even done, I feel guilty about, right? And sure enough, if I'm going through a bad situation, even if I feel, feel like I'm being treated unfairly, I feel like, well, maybe it's unfair in this situation, but maybe I'm being punished for something I did before that I didn't get punished for, okay? So I lose here every time. You may be different. But either way, you or Satan's going to appeal to the next level. But thank God we're not appealing to the Supreme Court. <laughs> we're appealing to Jesus Christ, right? Here's the, here's the good news. It may get to that level, and he may say, hey, all the charges against you are lies, like he did with Job. It's, it's nonsense. Or he may say, yep, yeah, you did it. <laughs> at every level, you've lost at every level, and they were righteous judgments. You actually did everything they said you did. But I've paid your debt. I paid the price. You're forgiven. Not just forgiven. You're not just acquitted. It's forgotten. It's removed from you. I got to tell you, that's good news. It's good news for me anyway, right? So when we look here, why not fast track your case? It's not overlook all these other levels. What your wife believes, thinks about you, what your circumstances, what your friends say, and your conscience are important, but they're not the ultimate importance. Next. So when, like Dr. Tony Evans brings up, is that until God has had the last word, you haven't heard the final word. Don't give up. Don't quit. Don't be uh, beat up by it. So next, so who is it that needs an almighty God? Men who want to take hold of God's impossible promises 
need an almighty God. But men who just want to obtain those things that they can in their own power, you don't need an almighty God for that. Men that want to do the impossible need an almighty God. But men who just want to be spectators or want an academic faith, a faith they can debate and talk about, don't need an almighty God. Here, I'll just tell you. You don't need the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, if you're not in the battle. Why walk around with all that heavy stuff on, right? You can leave it back. Why? Men who aren't in a battle don't need a dread champion, like it says in Jeremiah 20, 11. The men in the battle that are beat up need a dread champion. Men who've been beat up and condemned by the world need an almighty God. But men who are self-righteous or who have compromised with the world you don't need an almighty God for that, okay? Or men who want to save their entire family, their kids, their wives, their aunts, uncles, their, their grandparents, everybody, right? They need an almighty God. But men who are just want to see their team get to the World Cup or the Super Bowl, the World Series, you don't necessarily need an almighty God for that. And the last part, men who want to see their entire city and state and nation brought to Jesus Christ you're going to need an almighty God for that. I can't see it happening otherwise. But if we're just trying to protect our comfort, we don't need an almighty God for that. We, we've, we can take that matter in hand. And more than that, it's not just us, it's churches. Think about this. So you got the church of Smyrna. Do they need an almighty God? He says, I know your afflictions, your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they're Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you the truth. The devil will put some of you in prison uh, in, to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. But be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the victor's crown. Who doesn't need an almighty God? We look at Sardis, and it tells us, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. What I'd ask you is, do you know where the, the fastest growing church is on the planet? And I mean church, not one single building. The largest Christian body that's growing the fastest right now as of 2019, it's Iran. It's they're literally, some of the, the, the torture they endure, they literally raped men and women in prison for it, beaten and tortured, and yet the church is growing the fastest there. How is that possible? Okay, next. Who needs an almighty God? Uh, the church in Philadelphia needs him. Okay, See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Laodicea doesn't really need an almighty God. He knows I know your deeds. You're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you were lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, then I'm about to spit you, vomit you uh, out of my mouth. You say, I am rich and I have acquired wealth and I do not need anything. But you do not realize that you're wretched, poor, blind, and naked. One of the churches desperately needed God and can't, cannot continue without him. The other one, you know, Napoleon said this and it stuck with me. He goes, mankind needs religion. We can do without God. I'll tell you, there's plenty of churches in the United States that need the religion but can do without God. 
you do without Jesus Christ? So I leave, I leave you and myself with these questions. One, what ruling did God already overrule in your life? What impossible situation has he already demonstrated himself as El Shaddai? And here's my question. If he hasn't in your life, are you doing impossible things? Have you asked him to do the impossible yet? The second one is, what's the ruling that you want overturned right now that every other lower court has ruled against you? I felt like this during my uh, divorce. I was a total loser, right? My, co- my sons are going to suffer because of my stupidity. And every court rightfully had ruled against me, I believe. And yet God came in and overruled. He says, okay, but there's, they're also my sons. Let me, let me take it from here. And praise God he did. Oh, my God. And the last part is, what's the impossible situation today in your life that only an almighty God can fix? Is it a broken marriage? Is it an unsaved spouse or unsaved kids? Is it health issues? Is it a grandson who is going to die otherwise? Is it an impossible racial situation in our country? Is it an impossible political situation in our country? There should be plenty of impossible things that only an almighty God can fix in your life. So let's talk about that. Lord, I pray that you please be with us. I pray that, Lord, this wouldn't be an academic faith, but it would be a practical faith, Lord, that that our faith would be expressed in our actions. I pray that you would live through us. I pray that we'd give you space to live through us, that we'd remove any obstacles of your Holy Spirit in our lives. I pray that we would be not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Lord, live in our lives. Lord, awaken in each heart those impossible things that you want us to attempt knowing that we own the effort and you own the outcome and only you. So Lord, we love you. We ask you to please be in this presence, the presence of these men, these mighty men of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.